If you ever find a gun hidden in a dovecot cubby, may you have the wisdom to either put it back or return it to its rightful owner. Check off. Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we're here today to talk about Surrender, the second episode of season three. Surrender aired on September 17th, 2017, and was written by Anne Kenny. This episode was directed by Jennifer Getzinger. This is the only episode of Outlander Getzinger has directed so far, but it's possible she may be back later in the season. I don't have a complete list of season three directors just yet. Last week, there was a lot of complaining about everything being about Frank when nobody cares about Frank except for all of you who got in touch to tell me how much you care about Frank. And we will get to that discussion, I promise, but I will say right out of the gate that we've righted the wagon in surrender, and the result is a story, at least on one side of the divide, that knows where it's going and how it's going to get there, which I appreciate greatly. All right, let's go through the stones. In Surrender, six years have passed in Jamie's world, which has become very small as he lives isolated in a cave near Lally Rock. When the threat of the Redcoats comes at too high a cost to his family, he makes Jenny turn him in to the British, getting a reward as he's dragged off to prison. Claire's life in Boston continues to be conventional until she decides to go to medical school. She makes friends with the other social outcast, a black man named Joe Abernathy. And Frank's still there. Jamie's story takes up the bulk of this week's episode, which is a good thing because Claire is pretty much just treading water at this point, and I'm finding myself feeling much the same in the TV show as I did in the book. Jamie's stuff is great and compelling, and Claire's stuff is, well, Claire's stuff. So we're going to start with Jamie, and there's so much to talk about here that I almost don't know where to start. We pick up with Jamie six years after Culloden to find him living in a cave in solitary confinement for much of the time, aside from a few brief moments he spends with his family at Lallybrock. And when he is there, he isn't really there. Jenny gets right to that point. You can't why I can lie to the British and feel at peace. It's because I'm no lying. James Fraser hasn't been here for a long, long time. We are told that Jamie wears a little brown hat to cover his vibrant red hair, giving him the nickname the Dunbonnet, which I believe is Gaelic for little brown hat. But here's the thing. He's grown his red hair and his red beard out to like Grizzly Adams territory. And that Dunbonnet is not a hood. It's a little hat. It camouflages pretty much nothing. It seems to me that if he wants to hide his red hair, he'd be shaving himself bald and baby-faced on the regular, but visually that wouldn't give us the wonderful sense of him as a wild man, so okay, fine. We have Jamie out hunting for food, being canny in the forest, living in harmony with animals and nature, and being awkward and uncomfortable in the presence of people. At war within Jamie is the civil and the savage, and the savage is winning. But the connotations that come with savage, a sense of amoral wildness, brutality, aggression, don't apply to nature. Jamie living in nature is at peace, or at least as much at peace as reason will allow. He hunts for subsistence, and he's respectful of the wilderness and of nature. It's a simplified world he can understand, and it doesn't remind him of all the things he's lost. It's a live-in-the-moment kind of existence. It turns out to be civilization that is actually savage. Civilization is where the brutality is, as the British soldiers harass Ian and cart him off to jail, threaten Jenny and Mary McNabb, 
And finally, chop off Fergus's hand. The dichotomy between states of being is something we see a lot in Outlander, both in the books and in the TV show. And it's one of my favorite things, the way we play within two spaces at the same time. Claire is a 20th century woman living in the 18th century, a healer and a fighter. Castle Leoc is a prison and a haven. Jamie is a warrior and a scholar. Frank is a mild-mannered historian and a hot-tempered brute. And here, once again, we entertain these two separate spaces, the civil and the savage, with the balances tipped so completely in favor of the so-called savage that we can see clearly how incredibly messed up civilization is. For much of the story, Jamie is barely even able to use language to communicate. Nature has become his escape from the brutality that is human civilization. Jenny tries to pull him back into civilization, and he struggles and resists. When Ian is carted off to jail, again, she asks Jamie to look at the letters, and my suspicion is that it's not that she can't do it herself. She wants to remind Jamie that civilization also means home and family and hope for the future. Jamie can't live with that. The past is too painful. The future is too dark. Hope is too hard. For him, there is only now, this breath, and then the next. The forest scenes are peaceful, reasonable, rational. Rules apply, respect is given, peace is present. But solitude is the tax you must pay for this way of life. You can't have this peace, this rationality, this natural law, and also have family, hearth, and home. And Jamie has clearly made his choice. Until Fergus brings the savagery of civilization into the natural world. He does this first by bringing the gun into Jamie's cave, and then again when he taunts the British soldiers, bringing them into the forest, where the savagery of civilization becomes something Jamie can no longer avoid. Hold them down! Go to help! No! Wait! He's just a lad! It is this moment when Jamie is forced to reconnect with the dark side of civilization that he also reconnects with the light. He remembers love and the pain that comes with it. He saves Fergus's life, brings him home to Lallybroth, and collapses on the hearth, heartbroken. So what does that say about nature and civilization? Nature is isolating. The only way Jamie can protect himself from his pain is to separate himself from the people he loves and everything that truly matters to him. You remind me. I have something to fight for. And it is here that Jamie re-enters civilization and everything it brings with it in order to show love for his family and to get the reward money to secure the future of Lallybrock and to keep his promise to Fergus. He sets up a farce where he pretends to return home and Jenny plays along as the sister who betrayed him to the British. And as we have learned throughout Outlander, the best way to tell a lie is to tell the truth. You gave me no choice, brother, and I'll never forgive you, never. And with this selfless act of love and surrender, Jamie gives himself up to civilization and goes to prison to start the next chapter. As I stated before, Claire's story is mostly treading water at this point. We get two stories for her, one about, again, her relationship with Frank, and finally she moves into her next chapter, the pursuit of her medical degree. 
The story with Frank is at least from Claire's point of view this time, and it's okay. I will talk about why I had problems with Frank last week at the end of this episode, so I won't take up much time with it now. But it was never that we couldn't or shouldn't see Frank. He is part of Claire's story, but that's just it. He's part of Claire's story, and we do that balance right in Surrender. We tell Claire's story mostly through a sexual three-beat, which seems appropriate. Claire has always expressed herself through sex, and we open with her masturbating quietly in bed as Frank sleeps, while she thinks of Jamie. Next, we get her in bed with Frank, waking him at night, and like Jenny, telling a lie that is also the truth. What is it? I miss my husband. Finally, we get her and Frank after the weird dinner party with Millie and Jerry, as she initiates sex, and he decides in the middle of it that what she's prepared to give him isn't enough. You never used to close your eyes for me, ever. It doesn't mean anything. I'm enjoying this. And this is where I feel for Frank. This is the Frank that's appropriate to the story. A Frank who loves a wife who can't love him the same way, who is heartbroken by it and can't accept it, which is his right. It's his right to say it isn't enough for him, and it's his right to say that these are his boundaries. Those boundaries become apparent in the final cap to this part of the story, when Frank and Claire go to bed after a long day for both of them, and we pull out to see that they are suddenly now living in a 1950s television sitcom marriage. Along the way, we wedged in an awkward, sudden voiceover for Claire as she looks at a butter knife and sees a scalpel, and she returns to medical school as the only woman in the class and meets up with the other first only different in the crowd, Joe Abernathy. They have more chemistry in that moment than she's had with Frank since returning through the stones. And it's nice to see Claire finally in a relationship that will give her a safe space in which to be what she is and what she has always been, a healer. And we end her story and surrender with the first sound of bagpipes we've had since Culloden. And even in the context of a 20th century Boston street, the sound carries with it the heartbreak of all that has been lost. Another dichotomy we explore in Surrender is courage and cowardice, with Fergus functioning as our cruise director. First, from the start, Fergus's courage is apparent in his dress, while everyone else has been forced to abandon the clan-defining tartans, and there are no kilts to be seen, Fergus wears a plaid over his shoulder. It's dark, and it blends into the rest of his outfit, but it is clearly there, and our little Frenchman looks more like a Scottish soldier than anyone born to the place. Fergus's courage is apparent in more than his dress, though. He retrieves the gun, knowing how dangerous it is, and brings it into Jamie's cave, asking to be taught how to shoot so he can protect the family and fight in the next rebellion. I want to defend our home. I need to be ready. For what? Uh, our next rebellion. There'll be no next rebellion. But, my lord! No more fighting. Just because you're a coward now doesn't mean I am. Fergus's courage is an interesting contrast to the rest of the Highlanders at Lallybrock. His courage is bold, but not smart. He stands up to the British soldiers, the worst of which isn't even British. He's a lowlander of the McGregor clan whose viciousness toward his countrymen is disturbing and worthy of Fergus's rapier criticism. But while Fergus is brave, he's not brave in contrast to cowards around him. 
Jenny and Ian face the constant harassment of the British with intelligent courage. They play the game with the British, lying as they must to continue what way of life they have left to them. When the British come to the house after Fergus shoots the raven to ward off evil spirits, Jenny thinks quickly on her feet and tells them the baby has died to cover for Jamie, who holds the child in a nearby room, hiding. Mary McNabb also shows quick wit and courage when she claims responsibility for the gun and hands it over. For a moment there, it looks as though they're going to cart her off, but it's the British soldier, and not the fellow Scott, who decides to let it go with a warning, rather than a more severe punishment. And later, when Fergus's boldness costs him his hand, we see that a bold heart without a reasonable head brings only destruction. But even in this moment, Fergus responds with courage, because he's Fergus. I think I'm most lucky. In one stroke, I have become a man of pleasure. And once again in this story, we get to see Mary McNabb step up with her courage when she brings Jamie his last meal at Lallybrock before the surrender and offers him company and comfort. She doesn't pretend that it's a sacrifice, that she's not there to fulfill a need of her own. She doesn't try to manipulate him or ask him for anything in return. She acknowledges Claire and acknowledges what this is, a moment of grace and comfort for both of them in a world that has been tragically stingy with both. And then, in a lovely reflection of Claire's experience, a tear tracks down Jamie's face as he closes his eyes, accepts Mary's offer, and tries to find within her the shattered memory of the love that he has lost. Because there isn't much time to get a real response to the episodes before posting my review, I want to start off every episode of Sex and Whiskey reflecting a bit on last week, catching things I missed and maybe acknowledging where I might have been wrong. Sometimes you guys convince me to change my mind. Doesn't happen a lot, but it's fun when it does. When I was talking about potential for reflection between Jamie and Claire's story, you guys pointed out something I missed. I didn't make the woodland creature connection. Jamie stares at a rabbit that seems to have no meaning at all. I asked and got a variety of responses, but none of them felt strongly anchored in the text. So it seems to be just Jamie staring at a rabbit. And then we've got Claire staring at a bird. Does the bird represent Jamie and the rabbit represent Claire? I don't know, but I don't see textual support for it, so... eh? I did realize that Jamie's story is about reaching toward death and finding life. Claire's story is about reaching toward life and finding life, so we've got something of a connection there. Still, it wasn't strong enough to give the narrative shape, so my vote is still that it's not a particularly well-built episode of television. That said, the moment-to-moment work was pretty good. Even some of the Frank stuff. And let me just say thank you to everyone who sent in videos. I honestly didn't think anyone was ever going to send anything in, and I was prepared to make kind of a running joke of it, but I think I hit the right nerve. People have very strong opinions about Frank. Hello, Lonnie. It's Kelly. It's Pauline here, and I'm listening to you from France. I'm Hannah, and I'm from Australia, and I'm here with my G&T. For my drink of choice, I'm drinking sparkling iced strawberry and kiwi. I have... My tropical ice cream tea. Thanks, Frank. It was nice to know ya. But come on. Give us some more clarity. This is my answer to Lonnie's question, what did I think about Frank? And this is the hill that I'm willing to die on because I actually really liked Frank in this episode. So real talk, 
Frank is the worst. I thought this first episode was really useful to understand the dynamics between Frank and Claire. It's been a while since I've been together and so many things have taken place. I thought the show beautifully described the ambiguity of Frank's character. It's way more his story in this episode than it has any right to be. What do I think about Frank? The Frank is not the problem. 1948 is. On Twitter, I declared that 1948 was the new France, and I stand by that assessment. Gosh, I think that I'm just won over by Tobias Menzies' performance and how vulnerable he can be as a person. Uh, but I've never liked Frank before. Um, I didn't love how much he controlled the story of episode one, but I really love Tobias Menzies. What an ass. That's what I think of Frank. You, you were too easy on him. 1948 and France have the same problem. They aren't really about who we care about. You know, those crazy kids, Claire and Jamie. Yes, we need to see Claire in the 50s and 60s. No, we don't need to see all of this Frank, so much Frank, Frank all the time. Frank, whatever we think of him, loves this woman who came back pregnant with another man's child. He wants what is his best, in his opinion, for her. But he can't help being mean and petty towards her because he feels so frustrated with this weird relationship they have. There's no charm there. Just thinly veiled disdain for a woman he believes he's better than. Womp womp. We can all agree that focusing on Frank is a story mistake. But for me, the real problem with watching Claire suffocate in 1948 is that it feels a little too much like me suffocating in 2017. His behavior, I think, is mostly understandable until we get to the point where he is still wants to be treated like a martyr because he decided that he wants to keep his wife and he'll go ahead and raise this child so give him an award put him on a pedestal the house the stove the meals ah, the parties with the university bros i roll i roll i roll all are him drawing the parameters of the cage that he's gonna put Claire in. Even after suffering through the boredom of France, I return. But there may not be enough sex or whiskey to stand an entire season of my world reflected back at me from the vantage point in 1948. I feel for Frank, even if he's far from my favorite character. So yeah, I understand your opinion that Frank basically stole Claire's show quite literally, but I think the show was trying to make a point and it was very important to be made to be, to be making this point at this point of the narrative. That's what I think about Frank. And you, Lonnie, you I love, you're an angel. Thank you, everyone. It was wonderful to see your faces. And I love how passionately you all feel about Frank. So let me use that as a segue to address some things. As a story expert, I teach that there's a difference between I don't like it and it's bad, and also between I like it and it's good. I try to differentiate between the things I personally like from the things that are actually well put together. But sometimes I rant about fucking Frank Randall because I just can't with this anymore, and my personal feeling on the story gets inside my intellectual assessment. Hey, I'm human. My intellectual assessment on The Battle Joined and all of The Outlander we've had today is that it is not Frank's story and we keep trying to make it Frank's story. My argument for this is absolutely defensible using narrative theory, but honestly, if I start down that road, this show is going to be a lot longer than the episode it talks about. 
If there's enough interest, maybe I'll do my entire run about narrative theory and why Frank is not our protagonist, explaining everything in excruciatingly nerdy detail in an extra audio episode available through the podcast feed. I'm not sure how many people are going to be really interested in going into that deep dive into narrative nerdery, but if there's enough interest, I will do it. For now, suffice it to say, I let my emotional response, nobody cares about Frank, mix in with my intellectual response. This isn't Frank's story. And I'll cop to that. It was fun to rant, but that fun can come at a cost sometimes. And that cost is that the people who like Frank, who care about Frank, who think he's important to the story, feel shut down in those opinions. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not going to rant again. If something pisses me off, I absolutely will. But I just want to make it clear that you're watching this show not to receive opinions, but just to hear them. Fiction's value is in what it makes us think what it makes us feel. And if you like Frank and value that story, there's a good reason for it. Listen to my thoughts and opinions, absolutely. And narratively, I'm on solid ground with it not being Frank's story. But don't think that just because I say something, it's the absolute truth and you have to defend an opinion that is different. You can share a different opinion, and I want to hear them. I love opinions that are different from mine, but that's different from defending it. Other opinions are just other opinions. They're valuable in expanding our thinking, but they don't have to define it. Don't let anyone else define your thinking. You've got a brain. Go where it leads you. There's a reason. But right now, I just want to say I appreciate and respect the opinions of the people who love and care about Frank, and thank you for taking the time to tell me why. All right, we have both birds and rabbits in this week's episode. The raven that visits Lallybrock as Jenny gives birth and is shot for its trouble, and the rabbit that Jamie pulls from the trap right before Fergus loses his hand. So, birds and rabbits, both in Jamie's story this time, both dead this time, and I have no idea what they mean. I get birds with Claire, and maybe the raven just doesn't mean anything when it's with Jamie? What was it Freud said? Sometimes a raven is just a raven? I don't think it's a coincidence that Jamie pulled a rabbit from the trap right before another devastating loss, but I'll be damned if I've got a solid theory about the significance of that. So I want to know what you think. Send your video links to Lonnie at Chipperish.com. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. That'll do it for today. This episode of Sex and Whiskey was brought to you by Rachel, who supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level, and as a reward, gets to produce whatever show she wants. She chose this one. She chose wisely. Thank you, producer Rachel, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you, too, can become a Sex and Whiskey producer. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 3, Episode 3, All Debts Paid. Slash va. Sex and Whiskey is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a Chipperish Media supporter. Yeah, it's, it's tea this time. It's eight in the morning. It's, it's not literal sex and whiskey.